Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what, has, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not be faithless. The grass withers and the flower fades. Man, you may be seated. As we come to God's word today, we need his help, so let us begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word that's been preserved for us. We thank you for sending prophets to your people to instruct them, to correct them, to encourage them, to deliver your word to them. Father, we need your spirit to understand. We need ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us today that your word might have its full effect in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our passage today hits on some hot-button issues, I suppose. Divorce, marrying of foreign gods. We've been looking at the book of Malachi now for a couple of weeks, and if you remember, the complaints that came before, that they didn't understand God's love for them, that the priests had been accepting and the people had been bringing blemished offerings, sick and blind offerings, rather than the best that they were required to bring. We talked about the false teaching last week as the priests failed to instruct the people well in the law of God. And here we get more into specific actions that are taking place. Remember, Malachi is coming to the people after they have returned from exile. The temple had been rebuilt, and it had been about 50 years since. And so quickly we see the pattern of Israel throughout the Old Testament turning away from the way that God had instructed them and instead falling into idolatry, intermarrying with other nations, failing to worship the way they ought to. And so Malachi comes with this rebuke, and he makes an argument to the people. But before we get into our text, I did want to talk a little bit about how this uh, 
sometimes we think about our own moment in history, and we think about things like the divorce rate in our culture, right? So we're often referred to, you know, statistics that say something like 50% of marriages in America end in divorce. And that is a true statement. And then you might hear something like, it's the same inside the church as it is outside of the church. Now, if you take that in the most broad possible sense, that could be a true statement in the sense that people who would check a box of being a Christian would also likely be one-to-one with really any statistic in our culture, largely because many people in our culture identify as Christians. But if you are to narrow the scope of what it means for divorce in the church to these basic principles that they attend church regularly, so whatever that means, hopefully weekly, something like two or three times a month, I believe, would be the, the, the metric you're looking at. So somebody who regularly attends church, who reads the Bible and or other religious books, meaning, you know, theology books or Bible studies, and or prays privately or together with their spouse, if they are doing these types of things, the divorce rate is significantly less. It's 35%. Now, that might sound like a lot better percentage, but before uh, the church pats itself on the back, we must understand that that is still horrifically bad. That one-third of marriages end in divorce, even within the church. And so what's happening in the book of Malachi, what's happening in our scenario right now, is nothing new. This has been... One of the things that has been throughout human history, perhaps we can look back maybe at some particular time period and say, well, divorce was less prevalent then, and maybe that would be true. But the sinfulness, the failure to understand what God has required of his people, particularly the people within his covenant about marriage, is one that comes up again and again throughout the scriptures, in the New Testament, and even in our days. And it leads to so many things that are so painful in our society. And as we see Malachi coming to the people, right, God has just restored them out of exile. And he has brought them back into the promised land, restored the temple. And what is the basis of any nation but the family? Especially the family of God. This is a generational promise through the sons of Abraham. Right? We're told here he uses the words of Jacob and Judah. These are people, historic people that they're related to. And God's promises is through them and to their children. And yet when they marry foreign women who belong to other gods, and when they divorce their wives, they have the same breakdown of society that perhaps we see. Broken homes are generally... Uh, the number one indicator of most social ills that we see around us. A person who, broke, who is raised in a broken home is four times greater to experience poverty. They're seven times more likely to experience teen pregnancy. They're more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, to be abused or neglected, more likely to go to prison, more likely to suffer from obesity, more likely to commit crimes, 
and twice as likely to drop out of high school. Now, those are all terrible things for people to experience. But far greater is the issue that Malachi is addressing to the people of God here. That God's promises to his people, that his work and purpose in the world through this chosen nation are being put at risk by the way that the Israelites are acting. And so he reminds them about their identity. He builds this case against them, beginning in verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Have we not all one father? This could be a reference to God himself. Indeed, the next question there directly points us to God, the one who has created this special prized possession of his people. But perhaps you could even look back to Abraham, and I think there's some things in this passage that would point us to that, especially if you look and listened well during our reading, there was a repeated phrase five times, faithless, 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 faithless. And of course, if we know anything about Abraham, he is Abraham of faith. And so the people of God, they all have a united history, a united past. They are all one people, and God has brought them together, has delivered them so many times throughout their history. And yet, they are faithless to one another acting as if they have full autonomy, that they have no obligation as one people. But they are profaning the covenant of our fathers. Their sins are not merely personal. They're not just against one another, but they are actually in transgression of this covenant between God and his people, and so their sins are also not merely social, but vertical between God and his people. And they are called back now by the prophet Malachi to not act faithlessly, but to act in faith. Remember, before we got to this point, they were faithless in their worship, bringing terrible sacrifices, the lowliest of their Offerings. They were faithless in their practice of worship. They accepted the false teaching, the low bar standard of the priests. And here we see that they are faithless in the way in which they live their lives in the most basic things. Remember, the covenant of the fathers. The covenant of their fathers is a covenant that God will be a God to them and to their children after them. God would bless them and their children to the thousandth generation. And it's no surprise then that the covenant to their fathers in view here goes directly to what is jeopardizing those very promises of the covenant. Judah has been faithless, verse 11, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. That's 
about the strongest word you could possibly put on any sinful act, an abomination. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. You see, the temple was a holy place. The sanctuary was a holy place, and nothing unclean was allowed to come into it. You weren't allowed to come in if you had touched a dead body or all of these other ceremonial laws, right? There was this sense of the holy place being set apart. Indeed, all of God's people in a more general way are set apart. The whole nation is supposed to be this holy nation. And what Judah has done, what these people have been doing, is intermarrying with those who worship foreign gods. So it's not as if they brought in some sort of uncleanness, but they've brought in idolatry, not only into the temple, but into the community, into the covenant, into the nation. They are synchronizing the way that their fathers had, that had brought the judgment that they have just been delivered from. Marrying foreign women seems a bit odd in our context. There's certainly nothing wrong with marrying somebody from a different part of town or a different state or a different country in our day and age. And there's nothing racist or nationalistic here, but this is because of the generational promises of the people of God, specifically the descendants of Abraham. And it's not that this woman is just a foreigner, but that she is a daughter of a foreign god, right? Because we see stories in the Old Testament of people like Ruth who have come into the people of God, who have made a profession that your God will be my God and your people my people. Those people are welcomed into the covenant when they make that profession of faith, when they belong to Yahweh and to his people, but that is not what is happening here. They have not been converted to the true faith The Israelites have gone after pagan, unbelieving, idolatrous people and married them with no change. The people of God are uniting themselves and God's temple to foreign gods. And then we see the consequence of this action. Verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And see, we have the generational promise and the generational consequence. Indeed, it is a sad rebuke to think that the descendants of anybody who would do this would miss out on the promised blessings of God to his people who have acted faithless who have thought it's not a big deal. We move into the second charge from Malachi to the people. We're told that in verse 13, they cover the Lord's altar with tears and they're weeping and mourning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from their hand. They've, they've come to realize that something has gone wrong with the relationship with God.
and they weep, and they throw themselves on the altar, and they're right, making this big display. It seems almost like a repentance, and yet they have no understanding about why God would have done this. It's not so much that they are repenting, it's more that they regret that the Lord is displeased with them. Because we see in verse 14, why does he not? Why doesn't he accept our offerings? Why doesn't he show favor to us? It's as if all that they have learned, all that the priests have taught them, everything that had been written down in his word, all of the words of the prophets who had been there alongside Malachi had fallen on deaf ears. So Malachi reminds them, it's because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Isn't it an interesting juxtaposition that because they have been faithless to their spouse, that God does not accept their offering? Oftentimes we think about religion, Christianity, whatever you want to describe it as, as basically a one-to-one relationship between God and individuals. And indeed, that is one true way of expressing it. But it is not true that God does not care about all of the other actions, all of the other relationships, all of the things that we do, and the way it affects other people, and how that affects our relationship with God. You have been faithless to your wife. God won't accept your offering. It seems harsh. And yet, we even see it in the New Testament. Peter, in his epistle, chapter 3, 1 Peter, says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You want to live a quarrelsome life with your wives? You want to dishonor your wife? Your prayers might be hindered. Your relationship to God will be affected by your relationship to others. To put more simply, our relationship to others are often sinful, and sin separates us from a holy and righteous God. We can't bring a holy offering from an unholy hand. That's what's happening here. And so what has been going on? What is the faithlessness that these people have been committing against the wives of their youth? Verse 15 tells us, Did he, that is God, not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was God seeking but godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let, not one, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For a man who does not love his wife but divorces her says to the Lord, the God of Israel, he covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So what's been going on here, remember, this is an ancient world. People got married much younger than we do. We're talking 16, 17, 18 years old. The wife of your youth. 
They had a skewed view of marriage. They didn't understand what it would require of them. The longevity of it, the work of God in it. We're told here in these verses three things about what marriage is. First, we're told that it is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. That is, it is a solemn vow. It is a lifelong, it is an unbreakable commitment. It has blessings and curses tied to it. Marriage is a work of God's Spirit, right? With a portion of the Spirit in their union. That it's not merely some sort of contract that they were able to go in and out of, but that God was at work, right? This is the people of God. This is the promise of God from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob down through the lines that God was going to bless their descendants, that this was going to be the line through which the promised seed would come. And so it's no surprise that when the line of God's people are being united together in the covenant of marriage, that his spirit is uniting them together in some way. We're also told that marriage, we're told about the result of it. What was the purpose of marriage? What was God seeking? Godly offspring. This was the most basic Understanding of what the people of God were to do. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. They are to go and to raise up godly people to worship the Lord and to care for his earth, to take dominion over the creatures, to do God's work in the world. And yet... The hearers of Malachi have disregarded all of these things. They don't view marriage as a covenant, but as an optional agreement. They don't see God's work of his spirit uniting them to one another, and they have failed to bring forth God the offspring. And now, instead, they are marrying foreign gods. I can't imagine the likelihood of God the offspring is going to be increased as they marry those who worship other gods. They are putting at risk the very work of God through his people. We are told that the man who does these things, the man who divorces his wife, who is faithless to the wife of his youth, clothes his garments with violence. Divorce is violence against your spouse. It is violence against God's covenant. It is violence against the work of God's spirit. And it is violence against God's purpose for his people. Jesus says something very similar as the people in his day were in a very common practice of divorce that many of us, as we think about the statistics in our own day, divorce is so common. It's almost that it's not even a moral category anymore. And they come to Jesus, and the Pharisees, they want a testament, say, is it, un- is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, the work of the Spirit, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did God, Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Because of the hardness of heart, there was an exception made. There was, had to be some way to deal with the hardness of the people's heart, the faithlessness of those who were abandoning their spouses. That is not what marriage was supposed to be among the people of God. It was a covenant. It was a work of God's spirit. It was to bring forth a godly generation to follow. But we may find ourselves in a different situation now. We aren't the people of God in Israel. We don't have the same promise that there's this unbroken line of descendants from Abraham. It's highly unlikely anybody in this room is related to Abraham. And if you are, things have still changed. So how does this apply to the church? Now that we are not this nation that is supposed to preserve the line of Abraham, the promised seed from the Garden of Eden. We are on the other side of the cross. Jesus has come and Gentiles have been brought in. Well, the definition of marriage has not changed. It is still a covenant. It is still a work of God's Spirit. And it is still a result, hopefully, for godly offspring. But we all live in this sinful world where that is not the case. Many of us, you know, I would bet if we polled the people here, almost everybody in our family, at least one person removed, has been affected by divorce. Perhaps we've been divorced ourselves. Now, Malachi is talking to a particular type of person. He is talking about the faithless spouse who abandoned his wife. Now, there are people who have been abandoned, people who have been so heinously abused that divorce was the only option. Malachi is not coming to condemn those who have been the victims of an abandoned spouse, those who have gone off and broken the covenant of marriage. But Malachi is speaking to those who have abandoned a marriage. Perhaps that is us. And so we have to think about these scenarios in our world. Divorce, 50%. 35% in the church. If we have been one who has been on the receiving end of this faithlessness, These words ought to give us comfort, that God cares, that God brings justice, that God will not accept the offering of the wicked hand. And if we have been the perpetrator of faithlessness in marriage, it ought to cause us to repent, to not wonder, why isn't the Lord pleased with me? 
but to understand our wrong, to repent to God, and to be reconciled as best we can with those whom we have offended. Perhaps we are married to a foreign God, right? Uh, our, our marriage, or uh, right, there's a division. We're not both in Israel. We're not both in the church. Perhaps we became believers after we were married. No need to worry. It happened all the time. It's in the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter one. First uh, Corinthians chapter seven says, "To the rest I say in the Lord that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is not an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving spouse is made holy by his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy." Remember, the purpose of marriage is godly offspring. Here we have this promise in the New Testament that even if your marriage comes in and it is divided, we are called to faithfulness, that if the other person is agreeable to stay married by your membership in the covenant with God's people, they can be sanctified. Your children are still considered holy. That godly offspring still comes through your line. We live in messy circumstances, divorces and remarriages, divided marriage. Perhaps we're somebody that's not even married yet. Of course, our culture loves to throw out to us all sorts of misconceptions about the purpose and meaning of marriage. And this passage is instructive to you that you would understand what it is all about and what you are getting committed into. Oftentimes we talk about marriage and relationships as being primarily about personal fulfillment. But Malachi points to something so much more glorious. That God is uniting people, two people together by the work of his spirit into this covenant together. Through good times and bad, till death do us part. And that it's not merely for your personal fulfillment. Indeed, there are many blessings that can come through a faithful marriage. But ultimately, he is seeking that we would be faithful to carry on. That we would have godly offspring. That we would see his work in the midst of our marriages. That we wouldn't go and marry off foreign gods. So that's a few categories of people who may see these passages and think, I'm divorced, I've been remarried, I'm married to a non-believer, I am not even married yet. What is the relation for me? But let's get down to the last category, and that is for us who are married to other believers. Hopefully we are not divorced. If we are married to other believers, I heard one pastor share a story of uh, some friends who had been married for a few years and they were in the midst of such a difficult fight that they were both just going to throw in the towel and agree to disagree and have an irreconcilable difference. They're both believers. They went to the same church, but they just couldn't figure it out together. 
And he went to their house, and he didn't really know what to say after listening to them. They weren't necessarily, you know, at each other's throats. They had kind of brought it all down and just made this reasonable decision. And as he was leaving, he felt like he had to say something. He didn't know what to say, but he turned around and he said, The book of Malachi tells us that God hates divorce. That's all he could come up with. And these two people, after coming to their reasonable decision, by hearing that word, began to think to themselves, What are we doing? And miraculously, their marriage was saved through that man's words. As we are married within the covenant of God's people, our marriage has an opportunity to bring great blessing, great opportunity for God to work as his spirit is uniting us together, to see the faithfulness of a spouse and to see the promise of godly offspring. Indeed, it is not... 100% that every offspring of two believers will go on to be a godly person, but that is the primary means through which God is growing his kingdom. And our marriages, as God is working through them, we have some very practical instructions, but they also point us to something far greater in Ephesians chapter 5. It says this for wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself his Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All of this talk about marriage pointing us to this dynamic between Christ and the church. These realities about how husbands are to love their wives, about how marriage is a covenant, how God is at work in it, and how it brings about godly offspring is all pointing to how Christ loves the church. The reality is, no matter how great our marriage is, we will all be faithless in some way, at some moment, perhaps in many moments. But there is great comfort in these passages because it pulls us back to something that is greater than ourselves. If our marriage is merely about us and our self-fulfillment and it has nothing to do with God and with his work in our lives and his work in the world, well, then when it doesn't go our way, it's easy to step away, to let it go. But there is great comfort because we know here that God is at work. That when we see ourselves being faithless, that when our spouse is faithless, it is not merely that we have decided to join together, but that God has joined us together. And that man should not separate that. 
that God will continue to bring us together. When we are convicted of our sin, unlike those who are listening to Malachi, when we look at our own actions, when we see our faithlessness, when we look at these passages from Ephesians and say, well, there's no way I'm loving my wife the way that Christ loved the church. What an impossible standard. We have an advocate. We have one who has loved us perfectly. We can find mercy. The problem with the listeners here in Malachi's day is they didn't know, they didn't care, and they didn't want to hear what Malachi had to say. It is not that they were going to go on to live perfect marriages. It is not that they were going to be perfect people but that they were supposed to turn, that they were supposed to bring those offerings knowing that they had failed and they were seeking mercy and forgiveness, but instead they had hard hearts. We need to be those who do not have hard hearts. And though we may be faithless, we need to look to the promises of the covenant, to the work of God's Spirit in our lives and in our relationships. And we need to seek grace and forgiveness and mercy. The last two things that Malachi tells his people to do in verses 15 and 16 is this. Guard yourselves. Guard yourselves in your spirit, that none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And at the end, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. It takes intentional, proactive dependence on God's help to avoid being faithless. The call is to guard ourselves, to be reminded of how weighty this truly is, how important this truly is, how spiritual our relationship with our spouse is. And to guard it, to not let our guard down, but to protect to foster, and to be quick to admit when we have failed. May God remind us of his grace to us. These often seem like hard words from the prophets. Indeed, the prophets always said the hardest words to the people. But as we began our sermon series together, remember that God speaks these words to his people in love. The priests failed to tell the people. The people failed to listen. But God wants to restore them. He doesn't want them to do these things. He wants them to receive his blessings and his grace and his mercy. And so it is for us. We may feel beat up by the words of the prophet, but the response is faith and repentance. To trust in Christ who can make us right knowing that he is there to show us his great love. And perhaps as we experience his love, we may learn how to love better ourselves. We ought not to pat ourselves on the back with our 35% divorce rates in the church. Instead, we ought to weep and mourn at the wickedness we see around us. Seek God's grace. May he change our hearts. May he give us boldness to do the hard things when it seems impossible. May we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of marriage, that your spirit is at work in the midst of it. Help us, Lord, in our faithlessness. 
Help us to turn again and be restored to you. Help us to love our wives and our husbands. Help us to raise godly children that they might honor and praise your name. Lord, give us your spirit to do this work that we cannot do on our own. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.